I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Hi listeners, Emily here. Please note that this week's episode contains light and non-graphic discussion of sexual assault. As always, thank you for listening. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 37, Don and the Older Boy. We also have a very special guest joining us today, Kate Schatz. Kate is a New York Times bestselling author of Rad American Women A to Z and Rad Women Worldwide, as well as My Rad Life, a journal, Rad Girls Can, and Rid of Me, a story. She's the co-founder of Solidarity Sundays, a nationwide network of feminist activist groups. She's a writer, organizer, public speaker, educator, and left-handed vegetarian Bay Area born and bred feminist activist mama. And as her Instagram and Twitter profiles say, she's been given a shit since 78, just like Anne and me. So we are thrilled to have you here with us to discuss the BSC. Welcome, Kate. Yay, hi, thank you. Welcome. Yay. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on this incredibly important podcast. 78, Woo-hoo. 78, 78. <laughs> it's a good year. Yeah, Emily, you're really outnumbered now. I'm sorry. But that's that's fine. <laughs> I have no have problem with that. <laughs> okay, so shall we get into our one-sentence summaries? Let's do it. Great. If, if we're able to summarize this book in one sentence... <laughs> Yeah, that's a tricky thing to do. Okay, I'll go first. Mine is, I would like to have a talk with Mary Lou Kennedy. (laughs) Okay, that's your summary of the book. Yes. Fair enough. Well, Emily. uh, Mine is equally not a summary. Mine's a question. Did Travis and Logan get scammed by the same sexist pickup artist? (laughs) (laughs) You think they took a class? Yeah. Okay. Mine is, uh, as usual, probably a little bit more about the book itself, but Dawn loses her mind when a douchey 16-year-old mansplains cars, sports, and girls' hairstyles to her, while Zach, the jerk child, enforces toxic masculinity in the neighborhood. That's a solid um, synopsis. Um, I think my summary would be, or my main thing would be, is this a Babysitter's Club book? Mm. Yes. Yes. Unclear. (laughs) Very unclear. Were were it not for a few detailed accounts of babysitting gigs, I would say no. Yeah. I think that's probably the central question that we're going to try to answer today, Kate. Thank you for proposing it so early in the episode. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, I'm not sure if you're welcome for me choosing this particular book to talk about, but I I think it's juicy. It is definitely juicy. Now, before we get into all this, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. Unfortunately, I'm a total individual and I like health food. Again, another Dawn book ruining my life. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Kate Schatz, and I've always identified as a Christy Dawn hybrid, but this book is making me question my my Dawnness. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our Prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. 
If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Kate, we're so excited you're here with us today for this super weird Dawn book. Um, I personally am glad it's kind of a problematic book. I love, I don't know um, if you know this about me, but I like to ruin things and I like when things get ruined. So cool. ruining Dawn, Same. although it hurts, it's it's it, arguably more fun. <laughs> uh, but before we get into the book, we'd like to get to know you a little better. So first, let's start with the obvious. Uh, tell us when you first started reading the BSC books and why you fell in love with them. Great. So I think like a lot of um, people of our incredibly specific generation, not yours, but the rest of ours in 1978, <laughs> I really probably started reading them in like third or fourth grade. I was pretty hardcore Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary, Nancy Drew, Babysitter's Club um, with a lot mm-hmm. of like Island of the Blue Dolphins um, and kind of like historic adventure fiction thrown in. But I'd say that my Babysitter's Club peak years were probably fourth and fifth grade, maybe a little bit of sneaking it into sixth grade. And then I, I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I moved on. Um, I, you know, um, I, I would say that it's like, I how really how I started writing fiction too. Like I didn't, I always tell kids when I speak to students now, I say I was writing fan fiction before there was a word for it, but mm-hmm. I would fill notebooks with my versions of Babysitter's Club um, stories and Oh, uh, I, I would write my own versions. I would totally rip them off and like slightly change their names. And uh, I also <laughs> was an enthusiastic babysitter myself. So, and I really, I really aspired to like have a kid kit. Um, I don't think I ever got it together, but my best friend and I were, we really shared the love for the, for the books. And she had a mom who always bought her the newest one. So Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just kind of steal hers, but I have really vivid memories of going to uh, my favorite bookstore as a kid, and they would—they were all in like the lower, the bottom shelf in the kids section, and I would just go and like cruise the spines looking for the one that I hadn't read yet, um, mm-hmm. and then basically read the whole thing on the floor of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I just read them over and over and over. It's—it's it's wild. Yeah, it is really wild. How with, with especially the first twenty books, so. Um, Anne mm-hmm. and I have our original books. I yeah. had given them to Emily and then taken them back. And so some of them are just falling so far apart. And then we're like destroyed, destroyed. And we're like, why? Why did we read this 40 times? Oh, what, this, what? this one's yeah. pretty, pretty brand new in my yeah. collection. Mine's it's apparently crisp. Yeah, it's very crisp. Yeah. Uh, this used copy I now have belonged to someone named Richardson. Okay. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Can you see it? I, that. I should also tell you guys that I um, one of the greatest exciting moments of my life um, is that I did get to meet Anne M. Martin once. Um, uh, I was tell us everything about so it. So it was um, it was 2015, and I was at um, it was the year that ALA, the American Library Association conference, was um, in San Francisco. 2015 or 2016. And I was like cruising the floor, like at all, like at all the vendor booths. And, you know, at those um, conferences, when big time authors are there, you can always tell that there's a big fancy author because there'll be like a huge crowd of people. And I saw like a crowd and I was like, asked around and kind of looked and I heard someone be like, it's Ann Martin from the Babysitter's Club. And I was like, oh my God. And I totally hovered and waited until the crowd to dissipate. And then she was actually just sitting at the table by herself. And I 
came up and totally fangirled and she gave me a hug. <laughs> I, oh was, my gosh. I was like, I'm sure she's heard it like a thousand times today, but I was like, you're why I started writing. Um, and she was very, very kind. That's awesome. I love that. Did you cry? Um, like on the inside a lot. I kept it together for Am, but I was yeah. definitely crying. And then I, I like went and squealed to my collaborator, Miriam, who doesn't give a fuck about Babysitter's Club. <laughs> and I was like gushing and dying. And she was just like, all right, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's amazing. Very cool. Okay. So you've already said that you're a Christy Dawn hybrid. Tell us more about that. Oh, yeah. So I think that I've always, you know, the Christie's bossiness really appealed to me as a kid. I think that I identified with being like a tomboy and like liking sports and being bossy um, and being in charge. Those were real kind of core identities for me as a kid, <laughs> kind of still are. Um, but I am from California and I too like health food and was a vegetarian at a very early age. So Dawn's uh, vibes in that category really felt uh, extremely relatable to me. Um, as a kid growing up in California, I think I was always really fascinated with uh, books about kids on the East Coast. Like I also loved anything mm -hmm. that was about like a sleepaway camp or like, mm -hmm. like, which felt so New England to me, like kids who would go away for the summer to sleepaway camp. I loved all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And so Dawn's presence in the, um, in the Connecticut realm really um, spoke to me. Again, this book making me question that identity, but uh, I, I, I appreciate, you know, and I think I liked, I obviously loved Claudia's fashion, but like that just didn't feel I just wasn't that cool when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I wished I could have been, but I wasn't. I wasn't that cool. Um, and I also did not like junk food. Um, mm. Yeah. So I was. Yeah. Bossy, in charge, like sports. I did not like turtlenecks. Um, mm -hmm. Nor did I enjoy a baseball cap. So that fashion aspect of Christy did not. Um, I did not connect to. You were more California casual. Definitely California yeah. cash. <laughs> Um, no silver bangle bracelets, like no, like, like ballet flats, like Stacy. I was just, you know, Dawn style with Christy head. Was your, was your hair L O N G long? No, no, it was, <laughs> it was like, I was actually like Christy, although not so much in the ponytail, but it was like really bland and like light brown and shoulder length and simple. Yeah, awesome. I would say you did not ask, but I think my favorite of all of Claudia's outfit details mm -hmm. is when they describe her like crisp white oversized button up with um, prints of vegetables. Like mm -hmm. it had like outlines of vegetables. I always thought that seemed like the coolest shirt ever. Okay, Esme had a shirt similar to that. Would you like to? Oh, it, was, it was an Esprit shirt. Ooh. Yeah. And it had a black background. It was an oversized button down and it had photographs of like, pumpkins and oh. like squash and ivy and Anne used to always say it made her nauseated she didn't yeah. like it at all <laughs> she would get mad when I would wear it but I thought it was very cool I, I would wear that and yeah. Esprit was like my I got one outfit from Esprit as a kid and it was like I felt like I was the fanciest oh totally yeah I think it was the only like actual shirt that I had but yeah but I still signed my first name with the E without the left hand bar because of a spree, I think. I think I stole that from a spree when I was like eight. Yeah. So, wow. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. That's wow. That's I think iconic. that's Yeah, it's in my adult signature because of a of brand that I couldn't afford. 
<laughs> What's the power? The power of branding. Wow, that's so capitalist of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. I just thought it was cool. I was like, oh, I don't need the up and down line on my E. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, just, it's superfluous. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so Kate, did you, do you think that um, I know you already said, like, you're the reason why I'm a writer for Anna Martin. Do you feel like the BSC, you know, there's a central question that we're sort of trying to answer throughout the podcast of like, how feminist was the BSC? You know, it's held up a lot as as very feminist. But of course, as Emily just mentioned, it's also quite capitalist um, and, and upholds a lot of structures that maybe we would want to break down. I'm just wondering what sort of lines you see from your early... I'm, I think it holds up less than Esme does. I would just like to okay. <laughs> note that. Because of a spree or because of other things? <laughs> No, I think it's less feminist than you think it is. Like, I thought you said it holds up capitalism less than I hold up capitalism. <laughs> That's why I was like, okay. No. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't. I think it's an open question as we go through the series. But I'm interested, Kate, in what you think about the lines, not just into your career as a writer, but in your, in your roles as an activist and feminist and what you see from that. Yeah. So I think, I mean... Who among us is not upholding capitalism, for right. one? But, um, <laughs> um, I would say, I, I mean, it's interesting. I think huge influence on me as a writer, um, less influential on my personal politics, I'd say. I mean, I think that I felt a sense of empowerment from the books. Uh, I mean, sure, in a capitalist sense, like there they were, like having jobs. And, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, I would say that I, I felt empowered by their competence. And so that's one thing, like in terms of the feminist argument for Babysitter's Club, I think it's problematic and weird in so many ways, but there is something really powerful about how competent um, and responsible and in charge they were and allowed to be, that they were able to just be like fully in charge of these kids. And I have, I'm a mom. And when I now think like, what I like, like, you know, when there's these like parents in the books who have like six kids and they're leaving them with like a 12 year old for like a weekend, I'm like who does that? But the way in which they were just really in charge and, um, you know, so responsible in their meetings and their organizational structure and um, in kind of solving problems with these kids, like it's totally replicating weird, you know, like maternal uh, domestic um, shit, but it was also really cool for me as a kid that they were just like really in charge. So I, I think that was influential on me. Uh, again, as a writer, I mean, I think I just really learned narrative from that book. You know, again, all the books that I read, and many of which were really formulaic, including Nancy Drew books and even like Ramona Quimby books, and I loved all the like super fudge books. There's there's a formula to to them, and but it still taught me structure. It taught me dialogue. And mm-hmm. even even the work that I do that's not fiction, um, it just taught me how to write and understand story. And I, I see that now in my own daughter. She's in sixth grade. And I see the way that she's reading and writing. And um, I taught creative writing to high school students for a really long time. And I really, um, I think I was like skeptical of fan fiction at first when I started teaching creative writing to young people and they were all doing it. But I realized that that's, it's a really powerful way that we learn how to tell stories. So mm-hmm. that is my, uh, yeah, influential on many levels for me. Awesome. Speaking of structure, uh, maybe this is a good segue into this particular book, which mm-hmm. appears to appears to lack some of the structure that we have come to. Mm-hmm. Um expect from Anna Martin's non-ghost written work. So uh, 
anyone want to jump in and just say a little bit about the basic plot and why we're all four so confused about this book? Uh, so, well, first, the, the book opens with a makeover scene. Oh, yeah. Because they're at, at Christie's mansion having a sleepover. Um, and then in the morning, they all wake up and go down for breakfast. And Sam and Charlie are there with their new friend, Travis, who is like, apparently this hunk from California who looks to be about 35, yeah, according he, to the cover of the book. Yeah, he and Scott work at the same brokerage firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah if, okay, the cover of this book is like, Travis is like the strapping man. He looks to be uh, at least at least in his early 30s, I would say. Yeah, he's 30 if he's a day. Yeah, and then Don just has an immediate... Crush yeah. on him. He's like a st- he's like a stock rapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Insert rapist here. He's like sent straight from central casting. He's like the rapist from an 80s movie. <laughs> like yeah. Totally. Horrifying looking. And his also in a Canadian tuxedo, we should add. <laughs> yeah. Long denim on denim. Yeah. On what seemed to be denim sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and his hair is kind of slicked back a little, which makes it creepier, mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's eating granola, oh, which right. is the apparently it's the state food of California. <laughs> <laughs> and Don's like, oh, my God, he's eating granola. My mom and I make our own granola at home. So this Nothing is basically. Is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is the basis of their quote unquote relationship, I guess. Yeah. And then Don totally acts like a completely different human um although we did see her do this a little bit with parker and babysitters on board she also acts pretty bizarre in that first super special but not quite as bizarre but in that one it's a little more moony right she's like just kind of floating through Mm -hmm. interactions with everyone else and kind of wandering off and like i don't know not being a different person? I don't know. Right. This seems a little bit more planfully obsessive. Well, I feel like this book could end up in a murder scene. Like who kills who? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it could be either or. Yeah. Kate, what freaked you out about this book? Because I know you were texting me a bunch about how bizarre it is. I mean, everything about this book <laughs> freaked me out. Um, I think also because I'm so unlike you, all who've been deep in this podcast and really revisiting these books, I haven't read one for a really long time. And despite mm-hmm. the fact that I read each of them like a thousand times as a child, um, I have been dipping into them this past year as I've given them to my daughter. And she's also, like I said, she's in sixth grade. And so she's her entry point, like a lot of kids right now, is through the Raina Telgemeier graphic novel versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, Raina actually stopped doing them, but they've got some other artists doing them. So she, so then I gave her my original. So I've kind of looked at them, but I haven't sat down and read an entire one. So I think this just freaked me out on the level of like, wait, this is what? I don't remember it being like this, but I I don't think it was. Um, it's I think, not like this. Yeah, yeah it, it, it just like, yeah, from the start with the makeover scene to the boy crazy stuff. And I think I was really, Dawn is, it's this weird combination in this book where she's, um, she is really calculating and super self-aware in this incredibly like 
damaging, self-deprecating, like, I'm so stupid. I know I'm going to be stupid. I know I'm going to say something dumb. So she's really self-aware in that respect, but then she's also just totally clueless um, throughout the whole book, just like doesn't get it uh, at mm-hmm. all and like fails to see what it, and I feel like the, um, it's so ham-fisted his, mm-hmm. like the fact that like the first time he just shows up at her house, he's just like, here's a gift for you. Also, you should cut your hair. Uh, <laughs> like it's just no, there's just no subtlety. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was really like, um, really kind of stunning. So I think that was just like, um, incredibly creepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Please, please reread Christy's great idea tonight as a treat for yourself, because then yeah. you won't doubt all of your um, childhood memories. It, it, it is not usually like this. Yeah, <laughs> it really it, isn't. It's which, which I, I get. Yeah. And the, there were moments throughout the book where I was like, oh, you know what? Like, OK, I, I can see that maybe the lesson that they think they're trying to impart here about responsibility and um, and things. But but still, no, oh, yeah. much more to say. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's very upsetting. Sorry, go ahead, Emily. No, I was just thinking that I, I was really struggling reading this, thinking about. So often the lessons in these books are really ham-fisted, and they're and the parallels to the babysitting lessons are so silly, right? Like this, how, uh, every every week the same thing is happening to a babysitting charge as is happening to a babysitter, and they never realize it until the very end, and then there's this neat little mm. bow to tie on. And it's like, oh, wow, it was in front of us the whole time. But I thought in this one, right, like what Dawn learns is that like she did something wrong and we don't really get to think much about what he did that's so messed up aside from like that he was being kind like Stacy's like he's a creep or like that's not cool for him to you want you to change. So it's just like. But the emphasis is kind of put put on Dawn for like not having um, been sort of aware of what he was doing. But I think what he was doing was way more sinister than that, actually. It's like, like you said, just from the cover, like borderline rapey, right? He's like grooming her in this way. I mean, we, we've been joking for a long time that Logan's gaslighting the shit out of Marianne. But I think that like this is much worse, <laughs> Um Right, that like he makes her oh, feel yeah. small. Travis is definitely bumping Logan from his position. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, Travis. Yeah, Travis wins. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that struck me too, in terms of like the parallel narratives of like what's happening with the kids putting on the play, and then Don and this like sleazy rapist, uh, is that unlike like with Don and Travis, like Marianne and the others like really see what's going on and and like really advocate and are like like Dom, like you can't do this, you know, and Marianne both like tells her that and then she writes it in the notebook and they're really like clear eyed around that. And it really bugged me that in the babysitting scenes, when this little asshole kid is just like bringing his toxic misogyny uh, over and like, like harassing Jane, like really like bullying and like use the R word uh, because Mm -hmm. he played with, you know, and like really sexist and none of the babysitters did anything. Like none of them stood yeah. up for like none of them told that kid to get the hell off their property, right? And so it was mm-hmm. weird. And in each of those scenes, the babysitter was like, "Oh, I found it odd that this boy was being so mean." And they were like, "Why didn't James stand up for himself? Like, cause he's eight. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're like, do your job. <laughs> like, uh, so I didn't like that they that that felt weird to me. That yet on this, but obviously the parallel was like 
James should stand up for himself the way that Don should, but like be an upstander, man, like do your job yes. and be the adult in the room and tell that kid to go away. Yeah, that is exactly where I was going to go with that totally. too. I was just like that 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 parallel didn't I it was the wrong lesson. Like we're not learning about how this shit is toxic and how these men are trash human beings because of their commitment to like a particular version of masculinity. We learn that like you stand up to uh you stand up to the bad guy and like you know be yourself. It's like no. <laughs> that's that's not the lesson here. <laughs> But that also does track to like jump ahead a little bit with psychology stuff that tracks to our lessons on bullying in the late 80s, early 90s, like the the way that it was very much an individualist paradigm of stand up for yourself and bullies will back down. There were not interventions at the level of the school or community of how to create upstanders and um, structurally address bullying and restorative. And those kinds of things were starting to be studied, but were not implemented in the mainstream. And so that would have been, you know, if this if the situation with James had happened at school, I think, unfortunately, the adults would have said, well, James, what can you do next time Zach comes and says these things to you? It would not necessarily have been intervening systemically like we try to do now to get Zach to do something different. So that actually tracks with sort of where child psychology and educational psychology was related to bullying in 1990. But I think that that's part of the problem, right? That what we're getting here is the the argument that Travis is just being a bully. Not that Travis is like a deeply problematic human being mm-hmm. slash borderline abuser. <laughs> Like, that's why the parallel doesn't track for me, or that's why I think it's bad. Yeah, I I would add that I think when I think about what disturbed me with this, like the very first scene where Dawn's like really in conversation with him, and he just like immediately starts interrupting her, um, you know, and it's just like, just mansplaining all over the place. Um, it, it, it just, it was hard to read the whole book and just see that playing out over and over again. Um, and, and, and just again, to be... Um, very unclear. I don't think I like. I didn't feel confused as to why Don was so obsessed with him because that felt relatable from like being a thirteen-year-old who suddenly is just like, oh my god, I'm so in love. Yeah, um, that's not a problem. But, but the lack of his, uh, you know, clearly like what his motives were um, from the get-go were. I, I really agree. What seemed incredibly, um, incredibly sinister and like just really out of context that they went from like encountering each other with at Christie's house to him just like showing up on her lawn with gifts. Like, I felt like we were missing, like, 10 scenes in between those two. <laughs> yeah. As the other writer in the room, Anne, you had some thoughts on that particular leap as well. Oh, yeah. I had this theory that maybe Travis is gay. <laughs> so, we should make him much less I was, sinister. Because we'll make him much less sinister. But I, I had the same thought, like, what is, what's the motive here for Travis? Like, why is he suddenly, like... I met this girl for five minutes yesterday and now I'm going to send her, I'm going to bring all these gifts to her and like, you know, become, you know, visit her house and tell her how to cut her hair. And I was like, well, maybe this is like, he's just really into makeovers. (laughs) And then I was, Esme and I had a conversation about this this morning and I was like, yeah, it's like in the movie Clueless where Mm. Christian, like, you know, Cher has this huge crust on Christian because Christian's like really good looking and he's like 
she thinks he's like sophisticated and knows all these things. But he's really just like, Cher's really hot and I want to go shopping with her and like help her look cute. I need to be with the hottest girl in school to like hang out and exactly. have this project. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's probably not what's happening here. <laughs> no, I don't think we have textual evidence for that, but it would be a lot no. it would be a lot better. But it was the only thing I could think of. I was like, why why is Travis so into taking girls shopping? Because he does the same thing with Sarah. He's like, they go to the merry-go-round. He like gives her these earrings. And even Sarah's like, oh, like, this is the girl you've been trying to make into a great beauty or something, right? So, which I thought was a very strange, strange, like for Travis to tell Sarah about Dawn. So weird. I mean, I think either way you cut it, it's like bad, right? Like if if that's the like, (laughs) this is how we're representing um, boys who are gay in high school in the 90s, or this is how we're representing boys who are not gay and are actually pursuing young girls in the 90s. Like, uh, and the fact that that trope, that there's slippage between those two, like in that era, I think is problematic, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. these are the only two possibilities. Either you're like a rapey, groomy, grooming guy who's gonna set you know, set you up for heartbreak or you're a stereotype of a gay person. And like, these are the only two options. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I agree that there's no other possible motivation for him in the text because it is, as you said, Kate, there's like 20 steps missing between like, like, did he ask Charlie where she lives? Like, like there's, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And he obviously just went out immediately after he met her and bought all that stuff. Or did he have it already? Like, does he have just like a stash of gifts for these <laughs> these young girls that he's grooming? He's got a stack for every different eye color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ew. It's like he opens his closet and it's just like, uh-uh. <laughs> bright, bright-eyed girls, green-eyed girls, girls with long blonde hair, girls who are brunette. <laughs> what, what do I have here? Oh, a, a necklace that would bring out the color of her eyes. Um, speaking of brunette, you just mentioned brunettes. Um, I found that there was a weird number of references to redheads in this book. Mm. Uh, like everybody was described, like it, it like went a little bit over the top with the Australians and how they were redheaded. And then like the girl, like his girlfriend, Sarah is a redhead. And there was a reference to someone else who was a redhead. It made me think that Mary Lou Kennedy, our ghost writer Ooh. is perhaps a redhead herself. And wanted, oh. um, and like really needed to insert that or has a thing for redheads. Cause there was just a like disproportionate amount of um, redhead references in this particular book. <laughs> That's, That's really so funny. Even on the cover, that little child, um, the children appear to be the uh, redheads. So what's up with that? That's Mary Lou Kennedy's thing. Yeah. Well, Kennedy's an Irish last name, right? So, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Wow. She, we figured it out. Wow. Maybe she was like modeling Sarah after herself or something. I don't know. I mean, I think that's, I would, that's another, you know, the whole like, role of ghostwriters in these books and and historically in young like series book series for young adults like Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and everything um I feel like that was such a mind-blowing thing for me as I I don't think I knew that as a kid but when I got older and learned like Anne M. Martin and Carolyn Keene are not the ones who wrote all these books um and mm-hmm. when I really started to learn about the kind of history of that um especially it's like the 10th time I've mentioned Nancy Drew it's clearly my redhead um, I'm just I'm kind of obsessed with that. But uh, I think that's just a really interesting like facet of this. And as a writer, I always think about like, I wonder about these 
babysitters club ghostwriters like did they have like what kind of materials did they get did they have like an actual scripted formula for each chapter mm-hmm. you know did they have like a style guide to like you know be sure to mention stacy's diabetes be sure to mention you know claudia's candy obsession um like what what that material actually looked like like there's yeah so there's... i've read a little bit about that so anna martin has said in an interview that she always did lay out the plot of the book and the basic structure of the chapters so there she says that they are all plotted by her at least in the original series um but you could see how this basic plot could go very different ways depending on who's writing it, right? Because yeah. you've mentioned a lot of specific small things that make it much creepier and much weirder and much more out of character for Dawn than it could have been. Um, and then there was this, there is a style guide that was developed probably around this time or a little later um, that David Levithan, who's a young adult writer now, was an intern at the time. And his job was to go through and write down like the names and ages of everybody and what street they live on and all of that, you know, who is a redhead, like the Rodowskis and the Hobarts and who isn't. And um, so, but they didn't, this is only, I think maybe the fifth ghostwritten book that we've gotten to so far. So I don't know if they had that at this time. Isn't it funny that I feel like I could have done that job as a kid? Totally. They could have hired me to be like, can you please map Stony Brook and tell us who's the mom and what is her job and how many kids and how I could have been like, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. even even reading it, I was like, oh, I remember Dr. Johansson and Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Chewy the, Chewy the dog. Yeah, totally. But, you know, with Mary Lou Kennedy, this is an interesting this is the the second ghostwriter we've gotten to that this is their final book for the series. So she mm-hmm. only did Marianne and Too Many Boys, which we just did a few books ago, which we thought had too few boys, actually. Um, <laughs> and then this one. And then she doesn't write anymore. Not Whereas invited some back. People, yeah. And there's some people that go on and on and, and write a ton of them or a ton of the mysteries and things like that. So I, I felt like this one, if if I'm Anna M. Martin or I'm Scholastic, I, I would be like, well... We had to push it out on this date because there's one a month, but this is not a Babysitter's Club book, as you said at the beginning. So it doesn't surprise me that she didn't go on to do more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sound sad, man. I don't, I don't know what happened to this book. Like, who, how did this, like, slip through the cracks of quality control? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how you were saying, Kate, like, there is, like, a process to writing these books, and a lot of people read it. Um, it's not just like she writes the first draft and it gets published. So it's interesting. Like, did Anna Martin read this book and was like, cool. Yeah, this is great. My name is on this. Great. You know, like, I doubt that. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just so out of character. I was texting Esme saying how I feel like I'm on drugs reading this. Cause I was like, what is going on? Like, it's like, it's like a weird, like, parallel universe where everyone's their bizarro selves kind of mm. but if anyone knows anything about mary lou kennedy and her whereabouts right now please write us because <laughs> we have questions her whereabouts <laughs> <laughs> she's in hiding for the last 31 years like <laughs> She couldn't live this one down. Um, I I wanted to say that I when I when you first sent me this book and I started reading it, um, I was reading it with my daughter and we were doing like um, we were reading it out loud and doing kind of like dramatic read alouds, mm-hmm. uh, and it was really fun. And then I, and then I actually stopped because it just felt so inappropriate. I was like, this is so bad. I I don't think we can read. This feels like 
ew, gross. I don't even want you to like hear how weird Travis is. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We actually started midway through. We actually started the read aloud with the scene where she's following him, where she's like tracking him and his redheaded girlfriend on their mm-hmm. date. And she's like creepily on the other side of the earring rack. And, like, <laughs> yeah. Peering through. <laughs> I know. It's like, what's happening, um, Dawn? So oh, weird. Man. I, I think we should, I also, we should talk about the, um, the the phone call when Don really like gives him a piece of her mind, mm-hmm. um, yeah. That that also felt like Don did this really huge like she was completely clueless for the whole book, and then she becomes like and like couldn't even talk to him. And every time they had a conversation, she would be like, "I don't know what to say. I can't even function." And then suddenly at the end, she just like has this master class in like like uh, telling like standing up for herself and like he's totally trying to gaslight her um and she's just like no you will not do that uh, i'm not crazy this is real and it's how i feel and that was actually a kind of remarkable scene also entirely unbelievable based on the rest of the book yeah i totally agree i think it's like also to a, a moment of sort of missed opportunity moment right like suddenly she has the language to describe the way that he's been manipulating her but like we're still we still don't name name him as like the thing that he is that's that's so awful and like I you know the way Marianne was couching it I don't think tracks with the way that then Don brings it to him right like she she accuses him I think of something that is correct but that's not how they had been talking about it among themselves at the girls they've been talking about him as just kind of like a player like you know a, a boy who's stringing her along or whatever rather than as like a, an explicit like manipulator in a super problematic way but she's like you're manipulating me and I was like how did you get there like we need we need more I think of that <laughs> of that analysis <laughs> Anyway, this yeah. is why I posited that he's a future uh, sex offender. Yeah, that was my takeaway. So say more. <laughs> Tell us more about that. <laughs> well, that's it. That's my whole thing. He grows up to be Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Harvey Weinstein had a closet full of combs for different colors? <laughs> I mean, the whatever the worse version of that is yes <laughs> yeah yes yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah uh, okay. it's it's sinister man yeah it is very sinister because the way he even reacts to don on, on that phone call he's just as like mm-hmm. you're making a big deal out of nothing he's like i don't understand what you're saying it's just like he has zero yeah. like clue so like i didn't do anything mm-hmm. wrong i never meant to hurt you don it's textbook abuser, you know? You're making too much of this. If we could just get together and talk this over, I think you'd see things my way. Like, what? It sounds like, I mean, it's like an abusive husband. Uh, it's it's kind of, it's kind of, cla- like, this is, again, Mary Lou Kennedy. Like, what is her background? She knows a lot about some patterns here <laughs> that, are, that are coming mm-hmm. out. Um, uh, I, then I also think the other, as we're listing all the things that are problematic, is that the way that it ends is not just with this resolution of Dawn's like sudden empowerment. It's all couched in Marianne's creepy desire to have like yet another like fam familial double date situation. Like it's not mm-hmm. enough that their par- it's not enough that their parents are married. Like now she wants Dawn to date her boyfriend's cousin, and this mm-hmm. whole setup with with Lewis. And the pen pal, and it just becomes like weirdly insist. Like Dawn clearly cannot just go from Travis back to Dawn herself. She has to go to another boy. Yeah. 
that was the thing that I focused on a lot um, and that was very disturbing to me and also did not seem very Marianne. I mean, I think Marianne's arc, of course, is that she's shy and she has a strong core and learns to stand up for herself around a bunch of different issues. That's like a continuing theme with Marianne. And so for the solution to Dawn completely losing herself to be this other boy here, this is perfect. And it both serves my needs, but also it will make you feel better, Dawn. Trust me, just read the letter. Trust me. I sent your picture without asking you. Um, Is it was really upsetting to me even though I don't I don't have any problem with Lewis like his letters read as sort of believable 13 year old boy to me I didn't think like he he doesn't give me all the red flags is not right for Travis because a red flag means yeah. that it's like a subtle signal. Um, I, I didn't think there were huge problems with Lewis in the way there were with Travis but the idea that that's the solution was really upsetting. I really like when people are handwriting letters that will not be read immediately and they write down gotta go or like some excuse for needing needing to get off the letter. It's like what just just and just sign it. Like what do you mean you gotta you have to go study for your math test? I'm gonna read this in five days. <laughs> That's just how you ended letters. I don't know. That didn't seem weird to me at all. Um I also was I also felt disturbed by um with Lewis, just like this intense focus on looks still at the end. You know, mm-hmm. Don's like, Don's like, Lewis said he'd heard a lot about me. He wanted to meet me. He also said I was very pretty. And then in her letter, she's like, people always say I should be a model or an actress, but I don't know. And then again, her insistence that like, well, at least Lewis is really good looking. There's just like a, a heavy dose of good looking and pretty um, mm-hmm. and looks, looks based stuff that, um, you know, I, again, I don't remember, you know, it's just the kind of stuff we absorb, like in retrospect, I'm like, God, were they, was, was it, was that always such a thing that they were, had to be pretty and good looking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to see if we'll see more of that as the series goes on. Cause I definitely has like stuff has come up and obviously there's always a focus on Claudia eats all the junk food and still has perfect complexion. And there's, mm-hmm. there's things like that, but this is definitely the book that has the biggest emphasis on that that we've seen so far. And it also had a lot of subtle, not not so subtle, but in addition to the very not subtle, it had a lot of more subtle things just centered on romance and love being the most important thing. Like even when Dawn's doing the like obligatory chapter one and two explanation of who everybody is, she's talking about Christy's mom getting remarried and she's like, and oh, and this is the really wonderful part that then Elizabeth met Watson and he was, you know, he was wonderful and he was a millionaire and they got together. And it's like, is that the wonderful part of Elizabeth's Mm -hmm. life? I'm not, I mean, it's not bad, but, um, and even they say that like Marianne is the only babysitter that can make the claim that she has a steady boyfriend. Like it's this wonderful thing to brag about. And so it was just like looks and kind of the centrality of your romantic status to your identity were over and over and over again in this book. Uh, I also was annoyed that in her letter to Lewis, Dawn got excited about finding a place that has vegetarian pizza. I'm like, what the fuck is cheese pizza? That's vegetarian. <laughs> like you don't you don't need to put stir-fried snow peas and broccoli on pizza to make it vegetarian. Regular pizza is vegetarian, Dawn. Also gross. <laughs> <laughs> broccoli yeah and peas really and gross horrible she tried she she forgot how to flirt clearly 
The, the visual so of stir-fried snow peas <laughs> on a cheese pizza is so unappetizing. Like flat, slimy green things <laughs> on like greasy cheese is really gross. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, my only other developmental psychology thing I wanted to return a little bit to James and Zach, because um, I was also really disturbed by that plot, Kate, as you mentioned. Um, I did like... I was actually impressed with James for kind of the first half. We shouldn't have to be impressed with him because he's only eight, but he does seem like a really confident and kind of self-possessed uh, eight-year-old. You know, he's only lived in the United States for like a few months at this point. Time has no meaning because we're in eighth grade forever, but it hasn't been that long since they moved there. Um, and he he's able to sort of stand up for himself and defend his play and defend wanting to play with the Perkins girls and do this stuff for quite some time. Um, whereas I thought that Zach was not remotely believable no. in any way, shape or form. Like the way he's rendered is just like, who is this child? And I, in chapter on page 85, if we could just do a little bit of his, I don't know if we, you know, <laughs> his, his, like, uh, America. His, <laughs> yeah, his like Murica play. Exactly. I felt like it was like a, like a Christian radio drama or something like of the, the like problems of not adhering to God's plan for your gender. I don't, it was just really bizarre. Um, Emily, would you like to be James or Zach? Um, I will be Zach. Okay, great. Um, and, and do you want to be James? So you want me to be Zach or I'm James. I am Zach. Okay. Okay. You're J- okay so you start Emily. When are you going to grow up and do some guy stuff? Guy stuff? You know, football, skateboarding, things like that. This is my eight-year-old boy voice. I do a lot of sports. You could have fooled me every time I see you hanging around with a bunch of girls. You know, you're never going to be popular at this rate. The kids at school still think you're weird. Weird? Can you blame them? You don't talk right. You don't go out with the guys. And worst of all, you hang around with girls. This is this is Anne talking and I feel attacked. <laughs> anyway, I don't want anybody to think I'm weird. Well, of course you don't. But you can change all that. Just start doing things differently and you could start right now. I can? Sure. Come on back to my house and we'll toss a football around. Then we'll watch a new horror movie I just rented. <laughs> oh yeah, and we'll work on talking like a real American. Sound good? You're on. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like maybe the weirdest two pages we've read in any of these books so far. yeah and i'm including all of babysitters on board in that i'm including jesse ramsey pet sitter like we've had some weird things happen already and i don't i, I it was just yeah so in conclusion zach is not real at one point zach slaps james on the back <laughs> like attaboy boy. Like- is, is Zach like 60 years old? Like what is happening? He's like, you don't go out with the guys. They're eight. Like what, where do they go out? To the cigar yeah. lounge. <laughs> yeah. The men's club, the Stony Brook men's club. Uh, yeah. James is great. Zach is ridiculous. And I, I would like to defend the one chapter of this that I think is a babysitter's club book chapter, which is when the Thomas Brewers play camping. When they mm. play going camping in Christie's backyard, chapter eight, classic babysitters club chapter. Everything was great. All the kids were playing. They were into it. None of this other nonsense. It was like they lifted a, a Anna Martin babysitting chapter and plopped it in the middle. 
I know I, that sometimes Anne and Emily find the babysitting chapters boring, but my guess is that this one was a relief in the landscape of the rest of this book. You're correct. Anne didn't read it. <laughs> I, I, I read it. I may have read every other word of that chapter, but I, I didn't read it. It's the skin. Yeah. Um, but man, that, that play really wasn't that good. I gotta say. You want to criticize the writing structure of James Hobart's work no, as well? No. All right, Anne, what, what pop culture was left in this book other than granola being the state food? Right. California? Well, before I get into my main pop culture nugget, I did want to point out just a few things in the book that bothered mm-hmm. me. Just just some more things that have bothered <laughs> okay. me. Just from, okay, so on page 33, Dawn is describing her very old house. And she says, there's a long, dark tunnel that leads from my bedroom to the barn. And we think it, that it was probably part of the Underground Railroad, which helped slaves escape from the South before and during the Civil War. It's exactly like something out of a ghost story. Yeah. Like, those two sentences should not be back to back. <laughs> and that's also, I feel like, a writerly thing where it's like a professional writer would would never really put those two sentences together um, regardless of their like uh, meaning and context. They just don't, there's like, again, there's like 20 sentences missing between them. Maybe it's an allusion to Beloved, actually. Maybe um, Mary, Mary Lou Kennedy's uh-huh. a Toni Morrison fan. Actually, Beloved was, no, Beloved's written after this, I think. I'm just kidding. Because um, she did use other <laughs> allusions. Like there was like the reference to Pygmalion and My Fair Lady. And then also right. a little bit of Glass Menagerie reference at the end. Um, I'm just kidding. But uh-huh. the only, truly the only ghost story uh, about slavery is Beloved. So not not this one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, really, we just need to find Mary Lou Kennedy again and ask her all these questions. So the one pop culture nugget I had that I wanted to discuss was when um, Dawn gets into Travis's car on the way to the mall. And she says, and a minute later, we were zipping down the street with the sounds of hard rock filling the air. <laughs> so I wanted to maybe talk about what band this could have been a reference to. Fantastic. It is, it is this book came out in 1990. Uh, but so, you know, 89, what, what was going on in music then? So I, I did narrow it down to four bands. And okay. I would like to hear um, everyone's theories and guesses. I think I know the right answer, but I want to hear what you guys think. Wait, are you going to give us the four bands? And these are educated guesses, okay. by the way. Yes, yes. Okay. okay. So Aerosmith in 1989 came up with the album Pump, which mm-hmm. had the singles Love in an Elevator and Janie's Got a Gun. Mm. Um, Motley Crue, um, the album that would have been popular around this time is 1987, Girls, Girls, Girls. Um, we have... Bon Jovi uh, album Slippery When Wet came out in 1986. Lots of hits. You Give Love a Bad Name, Living on a Prayer, Wanted Dead or Alive. Also, another album came out in 88, Bad Medicine. Actually, sorry, single Bad Medicine from the album New Jersey. Um, and lastly, we have Guns N' Roses 
Um, user illusion mm. had not come out yet. They came out in 91, but appetite for destruction. Appetite's out. Yeah. In 87, welcome to the jungle paradise city, sweet child of mine. Wow. So what do you, what do you guys think? Damn, that's a lineup. I'd like to hear Kate's Kate's take so first. I love this is this is so great. I love this so much. So I'm gonna go. So I'm gonna go Aerosmith because it's to me mm. it's like the most basic and douchey of those options. Like I think Travis would be listening to like Dude Looks Like a Lady, um, which is like the worst song of all time. Um, uh-huh. And you would think it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, although I, yeah. I feel like Van Van Halen also feels like an uh, option for mm-hmm. me, even though you did not include that in the lineup. Um, I also wanted to say that I had an opinion about what it would have been because that scene reminded me of a scene from my own life when I was in ninth grade and I briefly had a, I was kind of seen a senior. I was a freshman and he was a senior mm-hmm. and he had a truck. And one day I remember I got a ride from him in his truck and he was playing, um, <laughs> uh, oh my God. is it foreigner? Who was it? The feel like making love song. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, oh. like, and I was, I remember being like horrified and kind of like thrilled and titillated and humiliated. Yeah. Like, so it's like, that we were, feel like making love. Um, oh, no, that is I, imagined, I imagined that Travis was playing that song for Don, which feels on the nose for his predatory behavior. But yeah, uh-huh. all that is to say, given those options, which I think are really great, I'm going to vote Aerosmith. Okay. <sighs> Uh, before we move on, uh, listeners, guess who else uh, dated a senior when she was a freshman in high school? Is it you? No. It's our friend Michelle who comes up oh! a lot as the sort of Stacy missing here and also as the like rich person. Um, like, uh, so yeah, also also Michelle. So wow. and I think I he had it. Stetson was... have a truck? His name was Stetson. What? Do you have a truck? Name- yeah, let's Wait. talk about this name. Wait, can we say his full name? Because it's way better than just his first name. I think so. I think we could say his full name. Wait, okay. I just thought of something for our patrons. Special episode yeah. with Michelle mm-hmm. where we just ask her questions about uh, her life compared to rich people things in the BSC and Stacy things in the BSC. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like a specific focus on that. Yeah, yes. that's a good call. That's a good call. <laughs> okay, continue. Go ahead, Anne. You want to say his whole name? It was Stetson Sanders. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a Mary, Mary Lou Kennedy would have come up with that name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think Aerosmith is very good, um, but I, my gut when you said it was Guns N' Roses. Mm. I mm. feel like it's a little like he would tr- he's not edgy at all. I agree that he's basic, but I feel like he would trying to be a little bit more edgy, but like Motley Crue would be too like dirty and edgy for him. Mm-hmm. So I feel like GNR is like the middle choice of, of those in terms of like what's what's safe versus what feels a little bit. Uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think that would be his like 16 year old in 1990 idea of dangerous. Or that's so the I'm going to vote Guns N' Roses. That he performs edginess, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. yeah. What song on any of those albums is the rapiest? That's my vote. Well, Sweet, sweet Child of Mine. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another point mm-hmm. for Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Great point, Kate. It literally I mean- says child. Girls, 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 girls is pretty. Yeah, like bad too. 
So are you voting Motley Crue or Guns N' Roses M? Um, my vote is he made himself a mixtape with all the rapiest singles <laughs> off of all those albums, and he just plays <laughs> it on a loop when he picks up girls to take them shopping at it's, the mall. <laughs> yeah. It's called, like, the rapiest hits of 1990. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ugh. I um, feel icky. So, <laughs> um, I just want to quickly insert that I Googled Stetson Sanders. <laughs> And I don't know if it's the same guy, but like there's a Stetson Sanders who is a really high level foreign diplomat. That's him. Oh, <laughs> he's very impressive. He did well for himself. He's really done well. Impressed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Board of directors. In yeah. Really. <laughs> Michelle should have, should have stuck with him. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Should have been a diplomat. <laughs> Excellent. Michelle's going to love this segment. And no, we're not editing this out. Okay, so votes are in. Kate thinks it is Van Halen? Aeros well, Aerosmith, Aerosmith with the potential for Van Halen. Okay. Esme, you vote GNR. GNR. Yeah. He would say it that way every time. And too. Emily votes on a compilation of rapey songs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so my my pick was based on the fact that he is from California. So mm. that that's really Motley Crue and GNR, right? Or LA bands. And so is Van Halen. I think Van Halen is an excellent choice, especially in the late 90s, is the Sammy Hagar years when they weren't as cool mm -hmm. as the David Lee mm -hmm. Roth years. So I think Van Halen is a contender for yeah. sure. Aerosmith and Bon Jovi. I was leaning towards um, Bon Jovi just because it's like very soft hard rock and it seems just very cheesy. Mm -hmm. But I think Bon Jovi is like, I feel like people, that's more of an East Coast thing. Um, mm. And Aerosmith is from Boston. I feel like also, but I feel like almost too good of a band for for Travis Aerosmith to like. Of, used to be one of Anne's top three favorite bands when we were in, in high school. In <laughs> middle school. Mm, I think the Get a Grep tour was when we were in high school. But go on. And then, so I think it's actually based on how bad the music was is um, Motley Crue because it's very... Mm -hmm like cheesy it's it's like guys who are trying to act really masculine mm -hmm. but they're just in like tights and makeup with like big hair and mm -hmm. i think that he like travis would have thought that they were cool and chicks liked motley crew so i feel like that was also like oh this is where i could go to like you know chicks who were into hard rock was they they tended to veer more towards the glam and not mm. so much towards like GNR was actually pretty is coming out of hair metal. Mm -hmm. GNR was actually pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Like I think they had yeah. more edge to too them. Too tough for Travis. Too tough for Travis. Yeah. But yeah. I do like the Van Halen. I can expect because Van Halen's from Pasadena, mm. which is pretty close to, you know, Southern California. It's like he I think he mentions he grew up by the beach mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. Malibu. So, and he do, does he live in Watson's neighborhood? 
Mm, oh, I don't know. We well, he goes to Stony Brook that. High, not okay, to the so not private, private school. school. Yeah, yeah. I do. I can. I can see. I can see Travis having like the VH Van Halen logo, like totally on his binder. Yeah. yeah. You know? It seems, totally. seems very, very believable. And also, yeah. Bamboo is also very like pretty boy kind of. You know, they're very radio friendly hard rock. So mm-hmm. I'm going to change my mind and go with Kate's suggestion yeah. of Van Halen. I think. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 (laughs) All right. Do we get any Claudia junk food in this whole book? Um, Hershey Kisses. That's it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a big absence of both Claudia and Stacey in this book, which I do not appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Not a lot on tallies either. Um, We get one shy for Marianne, one sophisticated, two bossies. Bossies coming back with a vengeance lately, still our most popular. And then a couple different social justice problems. Um, Kate already mentioned the use of the R word by our, our lovely friend, Zach. Um, and then we also, in the quote that you read, um, John refers to enslaved people as slaves, um, as if that is their identity. Those were the two that jumped out. And mm-hmm. we we get a lot more of those kind of problematic sort of outgrown words when it's a ghostwriter, I've noticed. Mm-hmm. So Anna Martin doesn't tend to use things like that as much. You failed to mention that she calls Claudia dramatic looking. Oh, I did have that written down. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's the weird substitute for exotic and almond-shaped eyes in this one yeah. is dramatic looking. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which I which I, I don't know. Anne is our most exotic and most almond-shaped person yeah. on the podcast. Do you think dramatic looking is a... Wait, is a- I like to say that my body is not almond-shaped, but my eyes may be. <laughs> Is dramatic a step? Is it is it is it a step? Uh, is it an improvement or a worsening, or is it just the same weird fetishization that we've seen the whole time? Well, yeah, I don't even know what dramatic looking means. Well, it could refer to her clothes, right? She actually calls her clothes exotic, though. I thought. Oh yeah, she does call her clothes exotic this time. She says Claudia is a beautiful, dramatic-looking Japanese American who loves exotic clothes. Oh yeah, Don's a bitch. um it makes me think that if we're if if almond shaped eyes is the indicator for the 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 asian eye i feel like white people eyes should be described as pistachio shaped because that seems like the most uh (laughs) i was like what nut what nut do we use to describe what if it was like christy and her pistachio shaped eyes (laughs) that's fantastic maybe a peanut or a walnut I don't know. Oh, I like walnut shaped eyes. I like walnut. <laughs> but like in the shell, right? Like not like no, the nut the shell. itself. Like yeah. In yeah. Walnut. <laughs> <laughs> walnut shaped eyes. That's fantastic. Em, you were going to say something a long time ago about the tallies, I think. No, it was related to the slave and enslaved thing. Uh, I was just going to say that Anne brought our attention to the juxtaposition of those sentences as a problem in storytelling. But I think also it, the implication is that the underground railroad is like a ghost story in, insofar as it's maybe like, yeah. I don't know, fictional. I was like, that yeah. seems like, like politically yeah. a problematic thing in addition to uh, a problematic sort of structural storytelling thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Or at best it's like, from a long, long time ago that we don't yeah. really think about anymore, as opposed to something that has continuing 
huge consequences for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're up for weirdest line. I didn't have, there weren't a lot of standout lines in this book, I feel. The whole yeah, thing was just kind of weird. The one thing. It's okay. We usually, we usually pick a line that um, we just feel like is either really clunky or really funny. That is how we figure out the name of the episode. Wow. I mean, so the whole, any... the whole book is clunky. Yeah. <laughs> and there isn't a lot of clever dialogue, to be honest. No, there's not. I I had a couple. Oh, ha, they were both uh, r- around that babysitting chapter that I said was the highlight of the book for me. Um, so <laughs> one was when Karen is setting up a, a bear alert, um, and David Michael gets very excited and he says, a, "A bear alert!" David Michael said, brightening, and I just like the idea that that was one of the best parts of this book um, was the was the bear alert. Yeah, and then the other thing that I thought was really funny was um don said about the play i've never seen a dog with less acting ability (laughs) which just brought to mind a lot of questions about don's experience with animal actors over the years Mm -hmm. yeah the only thing i noted which it really isn't even that interesting is during one of the during the play when let's see what page is it on it's when Oh, Gabby, Gabby yells, shoe sale, shoe sale. And then mm-hmm. get, it says picking up a decrepit shoe. And I thought the <laughs> use of like decrepit in this book was really weird because it's like, it seems like she's trying to use vocabulary instead of mm-hmm. saying like an old shoe. Yeah. A worn out shoe. She's using the word decrepit. Anyway, a decrepit shoe would be my choice. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fitting title for this episode. <laughs> I, I, I was struck. Um, I was struck throughout by the, the, the repetition of uh, the phrase, I should explain. Like that was kind of Don's <laughs> constant way of being like, I should explain that we're all in a club. Like I should explain that I'm from California. That's like her constant thing that she said. So that was one. Um, I also, I think a good, <laughs> like the line, you really know a lot about football. Um, <laughs> just like kind of sums up Don's horrible, horrible dialogue with this guy. That's so cringy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I kind of think that's perfect too. You really I, that's, know a lot that about gets, football. That really? gets my vote. I feel like that is a good summary of this book. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll vote for that. <laughs> and that's what she's saying right here. On the cover. Yeah. You really know a lot about football. You really know a lot about football. Wow. Hey, Don, why don't you cut your hair? Get another <laughs> ear, ear, a hole in your ear. Yeah. Yeah, let's pierce your ears because, like, I need you to have three. Like, that was so weird. He didn't, it was so weird that he wasn't like, why don't you take out your existing earring and replace it with this one? But he's literally like, let's put holes in your body because I think you should have, like, a full-on mm-hmm. addition. To- that was, mm. Yeah. Super cringy. It's very bold. That's one word for it. Yeah. Okay. So, Kate, we loved having you on the show. Mm, thank you. And do you have anything you would like to mention, plug about yourself? Have anything coming out? Oh, great. Um, I'm writing a book about um, – I'm writing a book that comes out not until March 2022, but it's what I'm working on now. Um, and I'm writing an anti-racist workbook for adults with Kamau Bell 
were writing a book together. Um, Kanal's a comedian and a TV show host and a, um, a good friend. And we are collaborating on a, on a book that's going to tell everybody how to be less racist and shitty and uh, how to stop asking the question, what can I do? Uh, and actually figure out what you can do. Um, it's got um, activities and games and quizzes. Um, it's like highlights for children meets brain quest uh, meets like radical history um, and uh, all wrapped up in a, uh, an anti-racist package with a conversation between he and I throughout and we swear a lot. Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. I'm so excited. May suggest a anti-racist kid kit. Oh yeah. Ooh. There you go. Well, we're, we're actually, after we've, we're doing a children's, we're doing a family friendly version of this book too. That'll follow that one. So, uh, that'd be, I like that idea actually. It's not that. Yeah. Very cool. I'm excited to know the release date of that. So March, 2022, March, 2022. Yes. Um, I'll be I'll here see. in two seconds. March, 2020 feels uh, like yesterday. I know, you know, it was actually, <laughs> it was actually supposed to come out this fall and they pushed it back to March. Thank God. So, um, yeah. That's, that's the main thing I have going on right now. Excellent. So, Kate, we also end every episode by doing a pizza toast to something Ooh. from the book, whether a oh, wait, theme. Before we do that, I was just going to say before we do that, we should also tell people that uh, they can follow you on the social media, right, Kate? So you're on Twitter, at Kate Schatz, spelled out like your name, mm -hmm. S-C-H-A-T-Z, mm -hmm. and you're on Instagram at Kate with an eight, K-8-S-H-O-T-S. Yes. That, did I get those two in the right place? You did. Good okay. job. And I, I should say, I, it's funny, I took Instagram off my phone um, th three weeks ago to take a little break so I could get through the draft of this book. Uh, and now I can't figure out how to get it back on. Like it won't reload. And I think it's a sign from the universe telling me to continue my um, social media break. But by the time this podcast airs, I'm sure I will have figured it out and you can find me there. Fantastic. Okay. So pizza toast is a toast to something from the book, a concept, a theme, a person, a character, or and sincere or or sarcastic works. Um, so any any folks, any ideas from this book about what we could possibly find <laughs> to pizza toast <laughs> in this nightmare of a <laughs> narrative? I will pizza toast two things. I, could, I actually feel like there's a few things I could toast. I want to pizza toast Christy for remaining totally oblivious to Don's drama the entire book. Like all throughout, she's just like, yeah, whatever. Travis was like, Travis is a girlfriend. Like what? Like she just so does not get it and doesn't care about Don's bullshit. So I pizza toast Christy for just yeah. steadfast dyke energy Christy, like doesn't care yeah. at all. Um, and then I would pizza toast the one moment that I liked with Don is on page 125 when she's telling off Travis and he says, Don, this is crazy. And she says, it's not crazy at all. I said smoothly. I've had time to think about it. And that like brief moment where she just like goes right through his gaslighting attempt, I thought was like a powerful moment. Again, not believable in the context of everything we just saw, but like mm -hmm. a striking moment of like, yes, good job, Don. So mm -hmm. pizza toast there. Those are both those are both good. So should we um Anne Emily, do you have other suggestions or? No, I like both of those. I'm things. into Christy's dyke energy. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I think we should do that. Yeah, I, I like that because we haven't talked about Christy enough this episode. <laughs> okay, so I'll I'll raise my slice of pizza <laughs> and I'll say uh, pizza toast to Christy's dyke energy. To Christy's dyke energy. energy. Yay! <laughs> 
Thanks so much for being with us, Kate. This was fantastic. Yes, thank you for having me. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for. <laughs>